0: Would you stand with me for reading God's word? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live." Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river— while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, "I drew him out of the water." You may be seated.
1: Thanks, ma'am. Well, oh, you can keep it. Yeah, give. It, yeah, sell it. No, you can keep it. Well, good morning, Reliance. Um, Oh, this is going to be fun. Um, Before I get into Exodus, uh, you guys know we have been going through Genesis, and um, I am looking forward to spending time with you in this marvelous text. I have two confessions. One, uh, it's really not a confession, the first. Uh, I've asked, I've wanted to think through how we are doing communion as a church. Typically, we've done it at the end of every, the last weekend of every month. And what I've hoped for is that we can create seasons in the life of our church where we're taking it more frequently. So starting today, and we hope that this become a a regular practice for Reliance, is that starting today, leading up to Good Friday, we will begin doing it weekly, preparing for the sacrifice of Christ Jesus and anticipation for his resurrection. And so over the next several weeks, you should have this expectation to come before the Lord uh, reflectively as a community and remind ourselves what Christ has done for us in atoning for our sins. Two, some of you might have heard a couple of weeks ago that we were going into Exodus and I had stated that we were going to do it in 11 weeks. Um, I went and sat down with Adam on Monday and I said I lied. And he says, I know. (laughs) I heard you say that I knew you couldn't do it in 11 weeks, and he is right. Um, And so I would like to do is, I'm going to go to prayer, and I just want to give you my thoughts of why we're going to go a little bit slower. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. We recognize as the people which have responded to the gospel, we have been drawn out in a, out of a relationship that was um, unhealthy with you. But you have been gracious towards us in Christ Jesus through his righteousness and sacrifice to restore us into a right relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that as we journey through to witness your hand in the book of Exodus, I, Exodus, I pray that as a people, our understanding of you and hope of you would only increase let us be a people who know who you are receive you as you are and follow you as you have revealed yourself in jesus name amen so one of the reasons why i thought about slowing down to going from 11 weeks to 20 weeks um I don't know of another time in our history that we'll have the context. One, Genesis gives us the context for Exodus. I don't know of that rare opportunity where we got to weekly go through Genesis. Part of me felt like if we just jump into the New Testament, which, is, which would be fun as well, that the opportunity that we have just enjoyed that just carries on to the, the book of Exodus would have been lost. So I thought it would be fitting, one, let's just keep on going. And, and, I, and I don't think that when we get done with Exodus, we'll just jump to Leviticus and then to Numbers. And I don't think we're going to do that. But I do think there's a context that really gives us a good platform to enjoy this, this text, this story in the book of Acts. Two, Exodus is awesome. Um, and while I say that, The significance that's revealed in Exodus about God is astounding. Like there is a sense in which in Genesis we're introduced to this compassionate God. He's merciful, he's patient. And Exodus, if you want to see God flex, if he does such a thing, it's in Exodus where he is awesome. And when we observe him, You witness his his faithfulness being fulfilled in the text, like even in the introduction to Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. You already see God fulfilling his Abrahamic promises. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you would be prosperous, And in the first seven verses of Exodus, you see God being faithful to that which he said he would do. The context is there for us. We anticipate the the God being revealed here to be incredibly fascinating. Uh, What I enjoy, and I'll go to my third here in a second, about the God which is being revealed in Exodus is that he will not be defined. He will stand before Moses, I am who I am, and as the reader, you either get to receive Him as He has revealed Him, or reject Him, and that is a, such a helpful thing to walk through because we do live just like them and the people of Egypt, where we want to identify or create a God in which we want, but in Exodus. The God which is being revealed is Him defining who He is and calling His creation to receive Him as He is. I think that would be helpful. Whereas, as a church, to reflect on that. But one, context is there. Two, I mean, other passages and other books of the Old Testament and New Testament are awesome. The Exodus is as well. Three, the impact of Exodus on the rest of scriptures is substantial. And, and it can't be uh, further stated. The The significance of what happens in this book will become the footings for what is written about later. Whether it be declared through the prophets or even in its poetry, Psalm 124, like it is it is it is a historical perspective or event in their eyes that they create songs about it. Psalm one it says oh, this is a fun one. If it had not been the Lord who was at our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then we would have swallowed up have been swallowed up us alive. Amen. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood which would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given as a prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped our help is the name is in the name of the Lord who has made heaven and earth that 's just one psalm that is drawing out of the events which is found in exodus, and I could as I don 't have the time, but the events which are revealed here then become a pattern which they are built upon for the rest of the old Testament in fact it could and it is argued the significance of Exodus is later infused into the New Testament. For example, when Moses writes, excuse me, Moses doesn't write the gospel, when Matthew writes the gospels, he's writing it out of the context or structure given in in Exodus, just as Israel will be called in this book, God's firstborn his, his one who has he given blessing and favor upon, it is upon Christ at his baptism that Matthew is looking in light of this exodus which Christ will provide, that the father said, this is my firstborn in whom I am well pleased. Israel wandered in the wilderness and Matthew wants his Jewish audience to be familiar that Jesus himself, wandered in the wilderness. Just as Israel came out of Egypt, so has your Savior come out of Egypt. Israel came through the Jordan River, and so has Christ come through the Jordan River. Just as you were washed with the waters, Jesus was washed with the waters. And John the Baptist is like, I can't baptize you. I know who you are. And Jesus says to fulfill the standard of righteousness so as you see, I am the one providing the new Exodus. So the, the idea that with we study Exodus, in some ways the footings at which we enjoy in the New Testament are only strengthened, which is cool. And even more so, even as we now will begin to regularly reflect on the table, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is Exodus language. And finally, probably more than any of the others, four. Salvation. In Exodus, the context of salvation is put before the reader and defined. Exodus isn't about liberation. It is, and yet it's not. And what I mean by that, in the the modern context, Exodus is perceived as this being freed from something. But if you understand what's going on in Exodus, as we will see here in these first two chapters, it begins with these individuals oppressed by pharaoh and which he makes them work and as he makes them work he has them build these buildings the salvation which you read and when you go across exodus which is helpful to understand the gospel which jesus is extending to the world Exodus ends with God taking the nation of Israel out of Pharaoh's authority and placing the nation of Israel under his authority in which he will make his people work. And so you have in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, his uh, a wicked king, making people work and build buildings. And at the end of Exodus, you have God acting as king and making them build a building. So in the context of Exodus, as which will become the footings, as I argue would we all, as we understand the scriptures, that they unfold is the transfer or salvation act of being moved from one master under a new one. It's not freedom from to no one. This is why Christ will say, you can't have two masters. You can't serve money and God. You will serve one of them. And so going through Exodus it helps me understand the God who will not be defined nor his salvation for he will define these things he will save you from the oppressive oppressive bondage which all people are under but don't think that that means you are free to do whatever you want for God has saved us to be under him in order to work For him, I think that's helpful. And so to understand these things, we must start in the beginning. But before I do, just to stress that last point one more. What the New Testament writers do upon understanding Exodus is they recognize that Pharaoh wasn't the chief like oppressor of all the world. It's sin. Which oppresses all of us and which Christ came to redeem us from. But it's always to stress this piece of transferring under one master to a new, good master. This is what Paul writes in Romans 6, which, which we ought, to some might remember. Romans 6, verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, means you worked for someone, or something, or this oppression. You were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit were you getting at the time from the things with which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Working under that master. Consequences of sin is death. But now that you have been set free from sin. Have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. And it's end eternal life. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To study Exodus is to help us understand the gospel. And that you have been saved from a master to be placed under a good new master. Stay under the oppressive master of sin and the consequences of sin. But be freed and placed and served. The new master is to have eternal life. And so with that, that is the four reasons why I thought it would be okay. I think okay with you to slow down and extend it an additional nine weeks. Probably come back in a couple weeks and extend it further. But the reality is, is that in Exodus chapter 1, let's get into it. The, 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 the oppressive king is put before us. And as he looks over the nation of Israel, he sees this perceived threat within his nation. Because God's done something. He's been faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he has made the nation of Israel prosperous. And he says this as he sees their prosperity in Exodus 1 verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and if war breaks out, and they, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The oppressive king, which is presented before us, doesn't have a name. He is merely called Pharaoh. He has forgotten Joseph. Mind you, when we got out of the context or gone through Genesis, Pharaoh is Pharaoh because of Joseph. Joseph's the one who prepared him for the famine. It was Joseph who set aside all the grain to get through the seven years. And it was through that period that Joseph negotiated with the people of Egypt through money. And once the money was gone, he said, well, you can pay with cattle. Once the cattle was gone, he said, well, you can pay with your land. Once the man- land was gone, he said, well, you can pay with yourselves and through taxes. Joseph made Pharaoh, Pharaoh. And this Pharaoh who has come onto the scene now perceives the nation of Israel as the threat, but it's a bit more than specific than that, the people within Israel that he sees as the threat is the men. For if another nation comes and wants to fight us, their prosperity of number will become our demise. So Pharaoh creatively thinks of a way to lower the numbers. So his first bet was. First solution, mind you, is to create hard labor. Look with me in verse 11. Therefore, because of this threat, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more that they multiplied and the more that they spread out. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all that their work. I put it up there and I underlined it, hopefully, for a point. They want them to work as slaves. The reason why I love, wanted to go right into Exodus because the context of Genesis helps us understand the context of Exodus chapter 1. Genesis 1, God creates all of creation, and within his creation, he creates humanity to work. Things have gone wrong. Man has fallen, and now no longer works for the Lord, but under Pharaoh, and he is ruthless. His mindset is for those, to, to cut back the numbers of the nation of Israel was to just make them work incredibly hard. The idea which is trying to be communicated here in these three verses is that by brick making, Brian talked about working in the fields and the mud that it provides on your clothes, brick making is harsh. It's well, it's hot, the kilns, yeah, I'll just say it, they're hot. And then you have to deal with the ash day after day, the soot, the ongoing physical demands. The, the, the idea that's trying to be communicated here, the work was so hard and was so overseen by these taskmasters, it was a work that led to death. And others might argue that, that these men would be so dire that they would be not available for their families. But the point is that the work was so hard that the consequences of this master was leading them to death, the numbers. But God's at work, even through the schemes of man and making hard labor, the men get stronger, the families get stronger. It seems, and they just pop out new families. Solution two: He tries to enlist the midwives to address this threat by killing the babies that are newborn look at verse 15 as the conversation unfolds the king of egypt sent to the mid hebrew midwives one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah. and when you serve as midwife to the hebrew women and see them on the birthstool if it is a son you shall kill him threat is his sons men kill kill future soldiers shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They recognized that God was making them prosperous. And here is Pharaoh coming along trying to kill that which God is making prosperous. They fear God and do not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the mill children live so solution one didn't work solution two doesn't work and in fact when the midwives come back before pharaoh is why haven't you been doing what i said to be doing <laughs> their response is i've heard that this still exists today like when it comes to delivering babies like what did you take to deliver to play a baby what medicines did you take well these women like the midwife they're beastly like when they get ready to deliver babies, Pharaoh, they ain't like the Egyptian women. No, no, they just pop out. By the time we get there, it's over. The, the term which they use is they're vigorous. They're, they're, your hard work has made them animals. They, it's nothing for them. They just, I think it's funny. you are thinking? It's really funny. And by the time we get there, it's over with. So first 20, God dealt with uh, midwives and gave them good families. And they grew very strong. Solution one doesn't work. Solution two doesn't work. Then solution number three, 22. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. In one passing, you have a culture that is attacking one sect of people. It's culturalized at this point. It's, this is a practice. This is what you do. And what I love about the first two chapters in Exodus. Is that Pharaoh perceives the threat to be the men To his authority. And what Moses has done very creatively in these first two chapters. I mean. We said about it this morning early in the Sunday school class. The women in Genesis don't get depicted very well. The men don't either, but the women don't typically get the honor like well, none of nobody's really good at it except for Joseph in the book of Genesis. But in the first two chapters of Exodus that they're tracking with me, the woman excuse me, the women are put on display in an incredible positive way. The threat isn't the men undermining the authority of Pharaoh. It's the women who are beginning to undermine the threat of this oppressive king. I want you to notice this. This is our second point. There was the perceived threat that the men would be the threat to his authority, but the real threat was the women. We've already looked at one of them, right? Why are you doing what I said you'd be doing? Well, they're they're not like the Egyptian women. The midwives have a perception of God and see what God is doing and we don't want to get in his way. The second woman put before you is actually unnamed. She's the daughter of a Levite. Exodus 2, verses 1 and 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. This is fun. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. We all laugh. What mother would not look at their child and say, this is the beautifulest child ever, right? Fathers do this too. But this child, no doubt, is the most beautiful child in all Israel and Egypt. And she sees, the word there is actually good. Again, reminding us of what God has done in Genesis chapter 1. God created everything, and it was good. And she sees this son, the perceived thread of Egypt, and she rightly sees as God sees. And what does she do? Look at verse 3. She could hide him no longer. Three months, she does this quite some time. She took for him a basket made of bullish bull rushes, and dubbed it with bit human i think that you might say it and pitch and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank so she will follow pharaoh not to the i mean, to the letter to the law but not in reality you're supposed to throw the babies in the nile i'll well, throw them in a boat <laughs> is her strategy quite quite brilliant hide him in the reeds when the soldiers come by the house, the child, <laughs> I mean, we'd be scared leaving the child out in the river, but maybe there's a chance he'll make it. She has done, in some ways, schemed with what she could to preserve the life of Moses by putting child in the river. What's interesting, what Moses does here, and he like well, the context, again, I, I hope I don't repeat it too often, but the context here helps us understand out of Genesis to Exodus, the term that he uses is ark. Just as evil became corrupt all over the world, Noah got called to build an ark and Noah was preserved through the waters. Here is a woman who sees that her child is good and hopes in the God who will preserve life once again in an ark. Really cool. So not only do we have the real threat, the midwives, this daughter of a Levite, the third is this six-year-old child, the sister of Moses. Don't mess with sisters. No, sir. Like my sisters. And One of them, you want, to, you want to be on their good side. And she is now taking her stand. I love the way that it's translated here, verse 4. And... And his sister stood, another way translated, translating, took her stand. Mom can't clearly do this, but she watches for the man in the ark, in the waters. She has put in the child in and placed it among the reeds by the river bank and his sister stood at an instant to know what would be done to him, good or bad. Moses is doing something creative here, placing before us as the readers. It is going to be a story about a man. But that man is established on the faithfulness of some women. Verse 5, the real threat. <laughs> Midwives, the daughter of a Levite, and the daughter of a daughter of the Levite. Granddaughter. Now the daughter of Pharaoh comes to the scene. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came. wonder what what's she going to do. To bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. Do you see it? Like, like Moses once there's just women everywhere. Got the daughter of Pharaoh with her women servants. And she took, and she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, imagine this would have been a scene, no doubt. The writer actually slows you down by using wordy words. Maybe not, but I mean, it's a, a paced writing. She took pity on him. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This one is of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh, his daughter, Shall I go? Shall I call your, you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter, This is the moment of truth. Well, she tipped the ark. But with one simple word, she says, go. The words of which Moses will long to hear from Pharaoh. Go, so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away. Imagine the mother who's scared half to death of her child be able to be there, don't tipped over when she comes back. only now be placed in the position to be paid to be the mother. That's, that's the living the dream. Bittersweet, no doubt. She's going to raise her son to be in the house of someone else's. Pharaoh's. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The irony of these first two chapters is thick. You have a man who has a perceived threat that the men of Israel need to be numbered. And yet, the real threat is the women who are undermining his authority at every level. And then that this Hebrew boy will be brought into Pharaoh's house, and he will hear the the daughter, his daughter, say, Moses, 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 the son who was drawn out from your edicts. What is Moses doing with what he's doing? It's creative. And that the emphasis might be be like the women. But rather, if you carefully walk through each of the situations with the women, their perception is of a God who is working out even under this oppression in which they recognize their unique role to respond rightly before the situation in front of them. They stay in their lane, the midwives. The daughter of the Levite, who bears birth to Moses, stays within her lane. The the sister of Moses stays in her lane. The daughter of Pharaoh stays in her lane. But they all respond according to their lanes in a way that we might honor God. Strikingly, might be. What about like? Sure, the adoption aspect is unique in the daughters of Pharaoh. But when she sees Moses in the basket, it's described that she has pity and compassion. Same terms that will be applied by God to the nation as a whole. He will hear their cries, and he will have compassion on them. The women are the threat. undermining the authority of what Pharaoh perceives to be the real threat. And how do they do this? Of all the names that are being mentioned here, there's actually three. One is Moses. The other two that are named are the midwives, and I think for a point, because it stresses their perception in light of the edicts a pharaoh in verse 15 they are named shifra and the other puah because they don't because they are unwilling to kill the sons because of a fear of the lord it's really cool what moses is doing in this first chapter an unexpected underestimated women Providing the means for the foundation for a deliverer to be raised up, and at times in the text it emphasizes men in Exodus it it emphasizes these women, which is is helpful to recognize that God responds to both men and women equally for fulfilling The roles as God's created beings, and fulfilling their obligations to see what God is doing and respond rightly. The years in which Moses would have been running through the hallways of Pharaoh and be reminded, always over and over, that the daughter, his daughter, had undermined his authority, and it was this man who will be coming back to him in years ahead and say, "Let my people go," and he'll wait, and he'll wait. For Pharaoh to say the simple words that the daughter said, go. It's really cool how the scriptures write themselves. For the women, this is not the first occurrence in which is being emphasized by their response and honored for the way that they responded to God as he works. For the the main theme in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 is God who is making them prosperous, the nation of Israel, and preserving Moses out of the waters. Three, let's go to our convictional response. How do you respond to this? Men, you're not ex- out of exception, simply because the emphasis has been the women, but rather the practice, both men and women, is to recognize that in the midst of an oppressive king, did not mean that they were just to go with the flow. That God honored those who went against the oppressive standards of Pharaoh and stand with the principles of the Lord. And this thing carries on throughout the rest of this Old Testament of women, typically, and also of men, but women are also emphasized throughout the stories of honoring the Lord. I think of Deborah. Deborah goes before Barak and says, the Lord wants you to go conquer these people. And Barak's like, I don't want to. And Deborah's like, no, you need to go. And he goes, I'll go with you, go. And she goes, well, I'll go along with you. But because of your lack of faith in the Lord, the glory of the victory will be given not to a man, but to a woman. And it's not just the men who are practicing faithful obedience, but rather you see God working with both. You see God Historically, working with barren women. And and Hannah, she watches every prosperity around her, plead with the Lord, and yet God raised up a deliverer for her. Samuel, striking, it's not the first woman who's willing to give off their son. Hannah does it, and she takes him to the temple and says, this is yours. And Samuel becomes the one who delivers Israel out of their oppression. Again, Esther Same as well, Abigail. David is angry for the way that Nabal has treated him, and he's ready to go kill him. And in his heated position, Abigail comes and mediates and saves David from committing murder. All that, I guess, I'm saying is, I encourage you women, fulfill your responsibility. Don't take it lightly. And that we recognize that the women throughout the Old Testament have been the individuals which how the foundations of the family life are being established. Whether they be in the workplace or whether they be in the family. The expectations of the world how you ought to live. Let God define those things and be fearful of him and walk in those ways. Times You have to be very clever. Throw them in the Nile, but in a boat. And you have to navigate with wisdom in the ages ahead. I am grateful for my mother. I am grateful for my grandmothers. Why? They fear the Lord. And I pray for more that would raise up their children to trust in the Lord and not fear the things around them. For our children are going into the schools and workplaces And they feel in the minority now for their beliefs. They need you more than ever to enrich them in the confidence of the God which delivers them even in such harsh treatment. Very at the table. And I do want to apply this both to men and women. And men, your children need you as well to model that confidence But many of these women in Exodus chapter one and two are unnamed. In fact, that is a pattern that continues throughout the Old Testament and it continues in the New Testament. And we understand that that Exodus is about a salvation from transferring from one master to a new master, which is Christ. I mean, this is how we understand Mark one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, a statement which is... Quite political in light that Rome, Caesar, is the son of God. And Jesus presents himself, and he walks around, and he says, Repent, for there's a different kingdom than Caesar's. It's highly political. It's building off the foundations which we understand in Exodus. The disciples, if you read the book of Mark, our youth are going through it. On Sunday nights, the disciples are put negative constantly. They never get it. The demons are like, we know who you are. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, shh. It's the women throughout the gospel of Mark that are with him. They get him. It's the men. Teacher, rabbi, who is this guy that can calm the winds and the waves? As the reader are like, it, it's Jesus. It's the Messiah that's been promised will deliver you out of the oppression, put you under a new master. In fact, when you get through halfway, Mark chapter eight, Jesus finally asks them blatantly, who do you say that I am then? Peter says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right, good job. Now I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to go die. And Peter rebukes him. Three more times he will state the matter plainly bondage which you are under is sin and you must be delivered from that master and put under a new master rebuke him constantly refuse to believe him but there's one woman in the midst of the, the night before who gets it sees what God is doing and she's presented to us as this unnamed woman who gives everything she has to put herself under this ma- this, this master. And as we prepare for the table, remember the exodus, the faithfulness of these women. They saw what God was doing and sat under his authority. Mark 14, 3 through 9. So while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask. It's argued that it's about a year's wage. So, common yearly salary here $90,000 gone. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. can't see what God's doing to this man. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have had the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. And she has anointed me my body, bore beforehand for burial. She gets it. She sees what God is doing and sees what he is offering and she responds rightly. The women, men and women, are presented to you at times as negative examples and at times great examples to be followed after. Exodus is presented to you great examples and in likewise with Mark, another as regards to the one who is saving us from the greatest oppression, which is sin. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The standard. God's doing something. Men and women and what is man's response to do is to respond to his what he is doing rightly, even in the midst of the oppression. The salvation which we will continue to enjoy in Exodus and which we now presently enjoy in Christ, we have been freed from sin and been placed under a new master, which is Christ. And he has saved us from the works of sin, which we know fully well, to install us into new type of living to serve him one and only as king. And so as we look at the table today, what I would ask you to think about is, have you thought about salvation in that way? It's transferring from a master to a new master, which is good in order to serve him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you do give us because we recognize just like the Israelites will recognize. And no, there was nothing that they could do that might free them from the hand of Pharaoh. They had to wait. For the God who has the one, the means to provide salvation. And we have waited ourselves as well to free us from the power of sin. And that salvation that we have come to joy was not by our own works, nor was the salvation which Israel enjoyed by their own works. But they entrusted themselves to the God who was working out these things. And Lord, as we recognize that the story of Exodus has just begun, Lord, may we be the people who respond like these, entrusting ourselves to the one who is delivering us. Knowing full well, that you have saved us to do something. And that something is serve you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name. Amen. Love the ushers, come forward.